the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Our reading for this evening comes from Amos chapter 1, reading from verse 1 through to chapter 2 and verse 5. On the 25th of May 2020, the news networks across the world were dominated by a single news story. A shocking video showing the asphyxiation of George Floyd had gone viral. In the graphic footage, Floyd is shown spending the last 9 minutes and 29 seconds of his life crying out for mercy under the knee of a white Minneapolis police officer, a public servant who had already handcuffed him. The police officer in question was one of four present at the scene that day, and even though Floyd spent the last two minutes of his life motionless, several bystanders, despite their best efforts, were prevented from interfering. It was only when a team of paramedics arrived that police officer Derek Chauvin lifted his knee. The murder of George Floyd because that's what it was, became an event that quite rightly shocked the world, an event that very quickly became the catalyst for the Black Lives Matter movement, a thunderous cry for racial justice that has found its voice across the globe. The picture of a white man with his knee on the neck of a black man is a devastating one. It's a graphic reminder of an underlying evil that has continued for so much of history. Floyd's murder on May the 25th, 2020, generated a thunderous roar for justice across the world. More recently, and much closer to home, in March 2021, we heard another thunderous roar for justice. Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old woman living in London, was reported missing and subsequently found dead. A few days later, Wayne Cousins, a serving Metropolitan Police officer, was arrested and charged with kidnap and murder by asphyxiation. Cousins was found guilty and sentenced to a full-term life imprisonment. On this occasion, the underlying evil it revealed was yet another instance of violence against women at the hands of powerful men. Floyd's death created a thunderous roar, a cry for racial justice. Everard's death created a similar thunderous roar, a cry against gender discrimination and a plea for an end to violence against women. And whatever the injustice, whether it's race or gender, economic or religious, the desire to see those who abuse their positions of power to be held accountable remains a thunderous roar. And in a similar way, the book of Amos opens with a thunderous roar. The Lord God roars in response to all of the injustice that he sees, including the injustices carried out by his chosen people, the now divided nations of Israel and Judah. It would be helpful for you to have the verses in front of you. We're reading, as I said, from Amos chapter 1. Listen to the opening words again. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake. Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said... The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Make no mistake, says the prophet, God is coming in judgment. And whilst there may be those, even within our own society, wishing to remain deaf or even seeking to drown out the roars of justice, no one, says the prophet, will escape the thunderous roar of the Lord God. 
God's own people, his chosen nation, now existing as Israel and Judah, had turned away from the God of justice to align themselves with the false gods of the surrounding nations. And as a result of that deliberate idolatry, the vulnerable were being trodden down, the poor were being sold into debt slavery, and the weakest denied representation in the courts. Whilst all the while, of course, the wealthy remained in luxury, supported by the systems of repression that continued unchallenged. But, says Amos, none of this has gone unnoticed. The Lord has seen it, and in response he will hold those who have acted with injustice to account. God roars like a lion. And this evening in our introduction to this new teaching series entitled Let Justice Roll, I'd like us to consider one question and four answering statements that I think we can draw out from the verses that we have read together. And the question is this, how does God respond when confronted by injustice? And the four statements that we're going to look at in turn are these. Firstly, he raises up ordinary people to get involved in a messy work. Secondly, he comes in judgment, calling all peoples to account. Thirdly, he calls his people to refocus their worship and act justly. And then finally, he offers mercy to all those who hear his roar and respond. So firstly then, he raises up ordinary people to get involved in a messy work. Now since we're at the start of this series, it'd be helpful to surround the verses that we have read with some historical context. Amos very helpfully sets the scene for us by giving us some clear historical detail in verse 1. Jeroboam's reign dates from 788 to 747 BC, which sets our reading in the 8th century BC, about a hundred years after the formation of the two separate though historically connected nations of Israel, a confederacy of ten geographically northern tribes and their southerly neighbour, Judah a nation comprising of just two tribes. Now, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the historical setting of the book, its structure, uh, then I'd recommend you take a look at the Bible Project's short overview video on their website. Now, Amos is resident in the southern land of Judah, but the prophetic call that he receives from God is to go and preach what is largely a message of judgment to the people of Israel in the north. At this point in history, the northern kingdom of Israel was experiencing a time of political and financial prosperity, mostly as the result of having experienced some military success in the region. Israel had even managed to extend its borders, annexing land and territory to the north and east. But focusing on concerns abroad had led to social apathy within the country. The people's deliberate tolerance of other systems of worship and clear idolatry against Yahweh resulted in injustice and neglect, especially amongst those most vulnerable in society. So what is the first thing that God does in response? Well, he calls a shepherd from Tekoa to deliver a series of devastating messages. Now, in chapter 7, we get to learn a little bit more about who Amos was. This is what he says. This is his own words. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go, prophesy to my people, Israel. So here is another example, and the, the Bible is full of them, isn't it? Of God calling someone from what would most likely have been quite an ordinary life to take on quite an extraordinary remit. 
Amos, as we've noted earlier, lived in the southern kingdom of Judah in a small town called Tekoa, situated about 12 miles south of the capital, Jerusalem. And it's probably universally true that confronting injustice is never easy. Speaking truth to power is likely to encounter opposition and strong resistance. Amos, however, had it doubly hard because Judah and Israel, the southern and northern nations, had an uneasy relationship historically. So this venture had all the hallmarks of being both challenging and complicated. This was going to take some time and it would not come without a cost. Notice what Amos is prepared to do. It isn't simply a case of just jumping onto the social media bandwagon in order to express our views and so reassure ourselves that we've done the right thing. Instead, this would involve something much more complicated. Amos had to travel hundreds of miles into enemy territory, put his life at risk, forfeit his comfort and his livelihood. He needed to be all in. Nothing half-hearted was going to do. But that's what God does, isn't it? He raises up ordinary people just like you and I to see with clear vision the injustices that surround us. Amos chose to disadvantage himself so that he could better engage with the complexity and the cost and the messiness of it all. And maybe that's where you find yourself right now. If so, then God's consistent call to his people to seek the justice of his kingdom through the very ordinariness of our everyday experience ought to be both a comfort and a challenge, since that was Amos's experience as well. So how does God respond when confronted by injustice? Well, firstly, he raises up ordinary people to get involved in a messy work. And then secondly, he comes in judgment, calling all peoples to account. That's exactly what we discover, isn't it, in the remainder of chapter 1 through into the start of chapter 2, verses from the first prophetic message that Amos delivers to the people of Israel. It starts with God's assessment of the moral failings of six neighbouring nations that surround Israel. He talks of Damascus, which is in Syria, and then Gaza in Philistia, and then Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And as I'm sure you noticed when you read through the passage, there's a particular formulaic style of address given in each case. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and then in chapter 2, verse 1. For three sins, and even for four, I will not turn back. And I wonder how we're meant to understand that repeated formula. Commentators... They disagree up to a point, uh, but many think, and I think it makes sense to me as well, that it sounds rather like God is holding back. There appears to be a period during which God sees the abuses of power that are being enacted against each nation's citizens, but maybe because of his desire to see those in power change their attitudes and actions, he doesn't act without first allowing space for repentance. And whilst we may not particularly like to think of God as punishing injustice, I am tempted to think that that kind of action doesn't sit too far outside of our reaction when we see situations where the most vulnerable are exploited, where those without redress to justice are belittled and ignored. God is a God of restorative justice. His judgments are in line with his desire to bring about transformative change. They aren't fits of rage or fits of spiteful hatred. They can't be, because that doesn't sit within God's character. 
Notice too that each judgment, should it happen, is depicted as consuming that which is unjust. It is a fire that both refines and reveals. Notice too that the judgments are particularly personal and specific. They are based on the evidence that God sees of particular injustices within the nations. And sadly, the list of crimes against humanity that are outlined in these verses are particularly modern. Just take a look as you go through chapter 1. For Damascus, it was brutality in war, vigorously pursuing a pogrom of ethnic cleansing akin to a farmer threshing his crops, we read in verse 3. For Gaza, it was slavery in collusion with Edom. The saleable is sold, market forces determine everything, and profit drove everything. For Tyre, once again, it's slavery and the breaking of treaties in collusion with Edom. For Edom, it was aggression, it was murder and the disregard of their shared ancestry with Israel. For Ammon, it was enforced abortion. Notice what it says in verse 13. He ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Killing the unborn children of their undefeated foe was part of their drive to seize land. Property was much more important than human life, and the most vulnerable of all, the defenceless child in the womb and the tender mother-to-be, become victims of inhumane savagery. For Moab, the story is similar. Amos talks of the burning of the bones of Edom's king, which surely refers to the desecration of graves and the disturbing of the dead. So the most vulnerable become the most violated. God roars. And did you notice the single theme that drives all of the behaviour? It's the theme of acquisition. It's the fuel of injustice. It's the pursuit of more land, more influence, more prosperity. So at its very heart, injustice is fuelled by greed. And there's a twist. There's a twist in the final section of our reading and an even bigger twist that's coming next week when Megan helps us to consider the remaining verses of chapter 2. Did you notice that whilst God judges the nation for crimes against humanity, the inhumane treatment of people, the indictment against Amos' own people, the people of Judah, is different. Their crime is that they have ignored God, that they have turned away from him, that they've fallen into line with the systems of injustice that surround them. Something that is revealed further in the remainder of the chapter when we discover which nation is actually the central target for God's most damning indictment. Then thirdly, how does God respond when confronted by injustice? Well, he causes people to refocus their worship and act justly. Now, in truth, I'm being rather generous with this uh, third statement, because whilst it's true, its outworking becomes the major theme of the rest of the book of Amos, rather than what is being said to the people at this point in the story. But as I've already mentioned, whilst the nations that surround Israel are being held account for their crimes against humanity, Judah first, as we've read, and Israel, as we'll see next week, are treated differently. Since they are being held account for sins against God, for their rejection of his revelation. The six surrounding nations couldn't be accused of idolatry, since they hadn't been chosen by God or received God's law to live by. So how could they be held accountable for living contrary to God's word? But Judah and Israel could. And it's here that the real impact of 
Amos chapter 1 comes into sharp relief for us, just as it did for God's people all those centuries ago, just as it did for Jesus' disciples. Jesus puts it like this, Luke chapter 12, verses 47, 48. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It's easy, isn't it, to imagine the scene. As the story unfolds, the, the, the people are listening to Amos. And they're being increasingly just pulled in by this rhythmic, formulaic prose of Amos's prophecy. Amos has nothing good to say, does he, about Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon and Moab. And surely as they hear about their own familial neighbour, Judah, the land where this farmer prophet has come from, the people of Israel must have breathed a sigh of relief. Perhaps they're even starting to gloat. Maybe they were thinking, well, it's exactly as we thought. The times of prosperity that we're enjoying are come as a direct result of God's favour and blessing. We're clearly not the bad guys here. Everything's bad, but it's happening elsewhere. We're off the hook. We're doing just fine. But in fact, what Amos is doing is reeling them in with his lyrical prose, confident that they will take the bait. Don't be deceived, says Amos. Because you've been given more, more is going to be expected of you. In other, words, in other words, just, just don't presume there exists them and us. God has no favourites. He isn't partisan. He protects everyone regardless of ethnicity. Justice is borderless. So why does God send Amos from Judah to Israel? And why does God single out Israel? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that whenever God talks of judgment, he only does so in order to send a warning. Amos's words are designed to be smelling salt to a somnolent and complacent people. It's a call to change direction. It's a call to turn around. It's a call to return to his law, to defend the rights of the poor and to love the most vulnerable in society. Israel had lost their distinctiveness. They were meant to be a light to the nations. But instead they had become like the nations. And the reality as we see is that God's people had committed many of the crimes the other six nations had been condemned for. And because of who they were, however, they were more culpable. God wanted them to be distinct, to be salt and light. Distinct in the way that they showed their love for God. Distinct in the way that they loved their neighbours. And we too, just like the disciples in Jesus' day, are called to similar priorities. Listen to these words from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 30. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, says Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the relevance for us today as we hear the thunderous roar against injustice is to never assume that the problem is out there with those who don't know God. Since we must first look to ourselves. 
we must examine our hearts and our lives. We need to ask God to reveal and root out our own personal idols, those idols of acquisition that can so often cloud our judgment. And then we need to renew our commitment, both personally and corporately, to live lives of worship, lives of justice and mercy within our own particular context. And like Amos, we find ourselves called out from our comfort zone. We may find ourselves in difficult situations. It may be we are in situations where there aren't any quick solutions. Maybe where we are called to disadvantage ourselves in order to see God's kingdom break through into a variety of situations of injustice that surround us. So how does God respond when confronted by injustice? Well, first of all, he raises up ordinary people to get involved in a messy work. Secondly, he comes in judgment, calling all peoples to account. And then thirdly, he calls his people to refocus their worship and act justly. And then finally, he offers mercy to all who hear his roar and respond. Amos had to travel from Judah to Israel, from the south to the north, at the potential risk of his life for the sake of challenging injustice. But at another time, many years later, on another day, another Amos, someone this Amos couldn't have imagined would come. This one would travel from heaven to earth. This one would arrive as a defenceless baby in his mother's womb. This one would treat all people justly, regardless of race, ethnicity or gender. This one would bring a message of good news to the poor and release to the captives. And whilst this one would welcome the rich, he had many warnings for them. Warnings about where comfort and complacency would lead them. And this one only, not only risked his life, he gave it. This one became the victim of severe injustice and wasn't given fair representation in the courts. This one knew what it was to experience firsthand the effects of having the rich and powerful, the most comfortably off, abuse their positions and ensure that he became a victim in violence. This one had the full force of Roman authority bearing down on his neck. This one suffered death by asphyxiation. The roaring lion of Amos chapter 1 becomes the sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53. But why? What would it mean? Christ came to show us once and for all that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed. And that he not only champions their cause, but he understands their pain. God has been a victim. God has been helpless. God has been abandoned. And as I said earlier, many of us may wish that God would rid the world of all injustice, but in his wisdom he remains patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to repent. But the challenge to pursue justice in the everyday is given to us. And it's an even greater challenge for us today than it was for God's people in Amos' day. The people of Israel knew something of the light of God's revelation, but even what they did know created only pale shadows and blurred images. Yet we live in the full light of God's revelation, since we are those who continue to experience the joy of relationship with God through Christ and through the Spirit. 
Our calling is to follow in the footsteps of Christ. We're called to not only act justly because it's in line with God's character, but our calling is also to recognise, as Jesus did, that everyone we encounter is infinitely precious, made in the image of God. When we acted unjustly, God left his comfort zone to forgive us. When we were weak and oppressed, God disadvantaged himself to raise us up. We are living in the light of the good news of free grace. And because of that, we should live our lives with our eyes wide open to see the plight of the poor and the oppressed. Let me finish with another question. It's a question for us as individuals. It's a question for us as a community of God's people. How willing are we to be disadvantaged so that those who are most in need of justice can experience the joy of being raised up? My prayer is that we would accept the challenge to live lives of justice and mercy, that we would be those who would be available to do the work of God and his kingdom as he calls us to do it. Amen.